So you mentioned about the these um, possibility and lack thereof of a spiritual kind of dimension, which is more my area. I, I don't know much about God and all that. I don't really worry about it. Um, so I do a lot of research into near-death experiences, and as, as I've said, I've spoken to a lot of people who've, who've researched it. Near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, um, other uh, forms of enhanced consciousness, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of... Um, literature in near-death experiences, especially with veridical perception, of uh, non-local perception. I just want to get your your opinion on that sort of thing. I mean, there's a lot of well-known, obviously we rehash the same things, such as the Pam Reynolds case and the Dentures guy case, and there's 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 many of them. But um, what's your your take on that sort of experience? Um, well, my take is that they happen so often and so randomly that they'll eventually some of them are going to get some things right. So it's like if you have a million people who all guess a number and you're thinking of a number, one of them is going to be right. Is that person, that person have psychic powers? No, it's just a whole bunch of people guess numbers and that one happened to be correct. And so I think that in the case of where someone sees something that was off in the distance or in a different room, it's probably someone like a nurse or somebody who saw it and was talking about it through the hallways. And the person who was unconscious heard that while they were unconscious and it was saved to a part of their memory and they're just recalling that. And it seems like a psychic experience, but it's really not. Mm-hmm. Possibly. <clears throat> I mean, there are things that kind of go against that, such as um, one that Dr. Jan Holden mentioned that she's written about um, was a case in which somebody was I'm trying to remember. They were registering a flat EEG um, during a routine operation or some form of operation, and they were able to... Uh, perceive a um, it was an amputated leg put into a yellow bag in a theatre elsewhere in in the hospital and they were able to perceive that which I think happened during the period in which their EEG was flat Um, and of course there is the Pam Reynolds case where she was well, let's cooled. just stick with that one yeah. for one. So let's take the one where there's somebody who has a flat EEG and someone else, somewhere else in the hospital, there's an amputated leg being put into a yellow bag. So the person with the flat EEG, their brain, even though their consciousness isn't working, their brain is still working, They're still mm-hmm. picking up data. So they can still hear things and feel things. And those things are still going to be saved to their memory, even though they're not conscious. And they're going to remember it as a conscious experience, even though they're not conscious. So anything that they go, that's going around around them is still going to be saved as a conscious memory, especially if they go into, if they lose consciousness in an unexpected way, like a cardiac arrest or something, most of what your brain is going to experience after that is still going to be saved to a conscious memory because it's not being, it's not working properly. When you fall asleep, it would be saved to an unconscious memory. But when you just lose consciousness suddenly, it's usually just your conscious brain is still in the system where it's saving things to conscious memory and so all of all the things you're still experiencing even though you're unconscious is still going to be saved as a conscious memory when you wake up so this leg gets amputated and gets put into a yellow bag one of the nurses sees that and then they talk about it with the other nurses in the other hallways all around the, the hospital and eventually one of them is close enough to the room of this person who is uh who has a dead eeg and they, they're talking about the amputated leg being put into a yellow bag and so this is heard by the unconscious mind is heard by the ears which has been saved as a conscious memory so when the person wakes up 
they have this memory of this yellow, this amputated leg being put into a yellow bag. I mean, none of that is really spectacular. It's all clearly possible naturally. So I don't see any reason to think this was some kind of a spiritual power in any way. It could have just been, they heard it from all the nurses way after it happened and then it was rec recorded as a memory. So as opposed to kind of having that experience consciously, what that means is that they they had registering of, of, of the conversation regarding that while they were unconscious and then that was saved in their memory and replayed as if it was a conscious experience once they really yeah that makes sense i mean that would work for that case uh, i don't know enough about the case to really provide enough facts to to say exactly what went on i wasn't there um but yeah i mean that would make sense because of course with memory it's, it's very difficult to differentiate between an actual experience that you had while conscious versus the illusion that you had that experience while conscious how can you tell the difference so i can see yeah that that would make sense <clears throat> um of course there are there's always another case that adds something extra um go on to the pan Reynolds. everyone knows about it in this field uh, it's been done to death but we'll do it again just for the sake of of, of necessity um so you know about pam reynolds she was her the blood was drained from her head she was um cooled down to a to a level of almost cryogenic freezing um she had uh, clicks and white noise played in her ear uh, clicks in one ear at 100 decibels i think it was and white noise in the other ear which was played which was played continuously and then flicked back and forth to save the ear from being damaged um and she apparently floated above her body and saw the it was a um a skull saw wasn't it? A, a bone saw that they used to open her skull which she described as a like an electric toothbrush <coughs> which was accurate um, and she also heard a conversation during that period which was then verified later on now that would seem to be quite a substantial case because we say those noises were being constantly played at the level of almost a, a jackhammer on the road, which was constantly flicked back and forth to uh, monitor brainstem activity. So the fact that she was able to hear the, I mean, the, the bone saw is, that's fair enough. That's interesting on itself. But to me, the more interesting part is that she was able to hear a conversation which was verified, regardless of those sounds being played. So what's your take on that? Well, it's the same kind of thing as the amputated arm like the person when they heard the conversation about the amputated arm they never saw the yellow bag but when you hear yellow bag you, you're creating an image of a yellow bag in your head so the same kind of thing happens like with a bone saw if you felt it the physical sensation of it like cutting into your head and knowing mm -hmm. placing that into the context of being in the hospital knowing it's probably a bone saw you can place all the physical things of what it looks like and what it sounds like together just by knowing about where you are so you can place that together just by the physical touch. If you know that like, if you feel like something is being cut into your head, um, you can probably figure out it's probably a bone mm. saw. Your brain will probably suppose, do that automatically. Yeah, uh, I suppose the conversation, you know, like, I don't really know how she could have heard about it. She could, again, she could have heard about it later after the, after the operation was over, when she was still unconscious, lying on the table. They could have been talking about the previous conversation and she could have heard it that way. So, I mean... It, she wouldn't necessarily have to hear it at the time the conversation happened. She could have just heard about the nurses talking about the conversation they were happening that happened 
after the surgery was over and learn about it that way and remember it. Well, I actually agree that uh, consciousness outside of the mind is definitely possible. I can't say it's been ruled out or proven impossible. I just don't think we have any reason to believe it yet because all the things that can that are used as evidence seem to be explained by normal natural processes slightly better than saying there's this whole new realm of things that we have no other evidence for that this is indicative of. So I just don't think the evidence is sufficient to warrant belief that there is a consciousness outside of the mind yet. I mean, I think it would take a much stronger kind of evidence to indicate that than near-death experiences from my perspective. Hmm. Um, do you, are you aware of this um, Sam Panya's Aware studies? Yep. I talked with those with uh, Alex Sarkiris from mm -hmm. Skeptico. Neither of which, as of yet, have, have warranted any objective evidence that perception is possible outside, um, outside of being able to hear conversations. Um, but, of course, they put up targets, didn't they, to be viewed, which hasn't happened yet, and neither has it in any study so far, uh, such as with Penny, Dr. Penny Sartori, someone I've spoken with. You, you know of, of her? Yep, I think I'm pretty sure <clears throat> Alex mentioned her as well. Yeah. I mean, the one interesting thing I was able to glean from Penny's research, um, apart from the fact that none of the targets were able to be seen, um, again, whether that's evidence against it, I don't know. I mean, if I was out of my body, I wouldn't be looking at a target. I'd be thinking, what the hell's going on? I'm terrified. Um, but the one interesting thing I got from Penny's research was a case in which a man who was born, I think he was born or had it from a very early age of cere cerebral palsy, in which his hand had always been like that, very taut, tight tendons. Um, do you know of this case? Mm -mm. No? Okay, so he'd, he'd always been like that from birth, like very unable to move his hand at all. Uh, he had a near-death experience in which he experienced... Um, I'm trying to remember the details of a while ago, but I believe he experienced spirits of deceased relatives or of some kind of um, higher being who who visited him and then on waking up he was able to then move his hand um as if not quite as normal but to a much greater extent than he was originally which physiologically seems incredibly unlikely to impossible um based on the state of his tendons at that point from years of not being able to move them to suddenly being able to um which to penny suggested that some form of kind of divine or heightened activity was going on to enable him to do that and it's similar with things like um, uh, terminal lucidity which is rare granted very rare but does happen so what's your take on that sort of thing well in the case of his arm like I don't know of any medical way that you could explain how it could heal but there's different kinds of things that happen all the time that we can't explain medically there's all mm. kinds of medical phenomenon that we don't know how to explain, but they've been discovered later that, oh, that was just a natural phenomenon we couldn't explain at the time. So even if he did uh, wake up and was able to move his arm significantly differently, that could again just be an unknown natural phenomenon. Why would we jump to the conclusion that that's supernatural in any way? It seems like a stretch to make the conclusion that here's something that we can't explain, therefore supernatural. We could just do the same thing and say, well, here's something we can't explain, therefore unknown natural. If to really qualify as a supernatural explanation, you have to make like novel testable predictions to demonstrate that this isn't just an unknown natural thing that we haven't explained yet. So you have to you have to always find a way to differentiate: is this a, a real thing that we're describing, or is it an imaginary thing? 
And the best way we have to differentiate is by making future testable predictions. Because if you can say, I have this explanation and given this explanation, here's something we can expect to see in the future and then see that, it's a good reason to believe that that explanation is describing something that exists as opposed to something that's just in our imagination. But if you're just looking at a case and trying to reverse engineer an explanation, you can reverse engineer any explanation you want, natural, supernatural, whatever. So that doesn't really qualify as evidence of the supernatural because again, it's just, here's the thing we can't explain. It could be supernatural, it's a possibility, but it could also just be an unknown natural thing. Mm -hmm. And would you agree with that, with the case of terminal lucidity? What is terminal in, lucidity? In cases of commonly dementia, um, in which state complete coherence of, of a person's surroundings and, and people that they're close to gets lost and they aren't, aren't able to identify people or they, they become very confused. And in sometimes the days or hours leading up to death, they suddenly regain complete coherence and are able to communicate lucidly with those around them and recognize them um, before slipping off. And that seems very difficult again as you say to explain by current natural understandings of how the brain works um, because of course with dementia the brain is damaged and they're unable to access certain memories and certain functions um, and then within the days and hours leading up to death suddenly they're able to regain that um, the only kind of natural explanation we can I can think of from our current understanding would be that somehow the brain is able to reconstruct those those links well, I'd go the other way and say that maybe because the brain is dying, the barrier to those links is actually being broken down. So like in the case of cancer, if you have like a cancer cell or something that's blocking off or some kind of a tissue that is like squeezing a connection in the brain that stops you from being able to remember something, if your brain is dying and that scar tissue or whatever breaks down and it releases the tension allowing the brain to communicate mm -hmm. with that section, it can then allow you to have more brain function because the thing that was restricting it is actually being damaged by the further degradation of the brain. So mm -hmm. that would just be the first thing that comes to mind trying to explain it. So I, I, I still don't see why, even if it happened, why would we conclude that's the supernatural? Why wouldn't it just be an unknown natural thing? Well, the, the, the spiritual kind of explanation is that the, obviously when the body begins to die, the spirit or consciousness or soul or whatever you want to call it begins to separate from the physical brain and therefore is unhampered by the damaged tissue and becomes more lucid. How that happens and what the the uh, medium is to allow that to happen, I don't know. No one does. <laughs> but that's kind of the explanation. Um, in terms of the scar tissue and, and if there's a mass or whatever that's, that then dies and allows proper function to continue, uh, I can see why that would work if it was, say, induced by a tumour or some other form of, of damage. But with dementia, and I'm not a medical doctor, but I, I'm sure it's that those connections are lost entirely. They disconnect and they get damaged in a certain way, as opposed to a mass um, being there, which then which then lessens towards death as it itself dies. Um so for that to work, I think with dementia, it would have to be that the connections are re-established rather than made available because the connections are themselves are lost. Well, dementia can be caused by lots of different things. So in the brain, it could just be too much information. And so you can't process the information It can't be uh, coherent, like epilepsy in that case, those kinds of things where there's just too much going on in the brain and it fries your brain. Or it could be caused by... Um, 
information being sent to the wrong parts of the brain through different connections at the same time, uh, like a grounding issue and electrical things. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different ways to cause that. And so there's, depending on what happens in the brain, it's definitely possible that through some parts being damaged, it can cause other parts to be repaired or more functional in certain cases. Um, we see that happening all the time in different kinds of brain cases and neurological studies where some damage in one area can cause help in relieving uh, issues in other areas like depression, especially. Mm -hmm. You can use electroshock therapy to damage certain parts, to fry certain parts, to help relieve certain issues that they're having or transcranial magnetic stimulation, same kind of a thing, or certain kinds of like Phineas Gage where his was a negative case actually, where he was, yeah, a part of his brain was shot out and he lost his inhibition and his um, ability to like worry and be concerned about how other people see him. So the changes in the brain are pretty diverse in how every different disease can be caused like dementia. So it's not just caused by mm -hmm. only the connections being lost. That's definitely one way to cause it, but there's lots of other ways to cause it too. And depending right. on how it was caused, the effects of having uh, brain degradation can may or may not have positive or negative impacts in different areas. Mm. So the brain is just so, such a complicated area. We don't really know in those cases what causes it because we don't have that much of an understanding of how the brain works in general. And so having um, natural explanations of what could cause a sudden revitalization of memories and things is definitely a possibility that we see in lots of cases in other medical instances all the time. So I don't see why this would be somehow especially indicative of the supernatural. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, because as I say, I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm not, I don't know how dementia works. I've, I can only go off what I've read, which is always all the all the articles you read about it is when they're mentioning that it's getting damaged. So if, if there are other causes such as that, then yeah, that's definitely a plausible explanation. I mean, this is only things i've read so i don't know how accurate they are but there are cases in which someone was able to have an out-of-body experience and do you know about robert monroe mm -mm. okay uh robert monroe so he was a pioneer of out-of-body research at the monroe institute uh yeah the monroe institute and he created what's called hemispherical synchronization which is a tone is played in one ear and a slightly different tone is played in another ear which is supposed to create kind of um, synchronicity between the two hemispheres of the brain and allow a, a more enhanced conscious experience in which you're able to project your, your to project your experience outside of the brain and into higher dimensions. Um, and he's reported in several of his books that he was able to leave his body, go to a remote location, sometimes cross-country around the world and verify with friends or family who he visited in other locations to see what they were doing at that time and was able to, in fact, cause very minor harm to him. Like he'd pinch them and cause a bit of a bruise, which was then later verified at the time that he was doing it. Again, this is just kind of what he's written in his books. There's no way to really validate it, but what would kind of you say about that sort of thing if that is the case well if you could make testable predictions and do this for anybody and just put on a helmet and get them to see what someone else is doing across the across the world that would be great evidence i would accept that for sure 
family members i would say not as much it's less trustworthy yeah. at that point yeah because they're family members so they could just do the pinching themselves but more importantly like if you imagine a family member like i can imagine what my grandmother might be doing right now just by thinking about it because i know my grandmother and so i i know she's probably on her computer doing something that's not like a special gift because i know my relatives it would be more impressive it would be better evidence to be able to see what someone you have no idea what they're doing is or no, no one you've never met what they're doing like if you can do it in a controlled experiment in that way and do it repeatedly that's good evidence mm-hmm. um that i would accept as good evidence of whatever it is you're claiming is happening so if you if you can make a prediction and say i believe there is this thing this soul or whatever and if there is this soul we can use this kind of a methodology with the headset and the sounds to be able to project ourselves and look at the other side of the world and make predictions and we can do it repeatedly that's great evidence that would definitely work but i don't really trust his account of his book i don't really trust the fact that it's just his family and i don't think like we don't know enough about the brain to be able to say that passing a sound wave through one one ear and a slightly different one in the other ear does anything to the brain at all especially mm-hmm. since the hemispheres the left and right hemisphere is kind of a, a shorthand in neurology. It's not an actual thing where the left side does this only one thing and the right side only does this one thing. The brain is a system that works together and there isn't like a segment that just does this one thing. So I, I don't think that based off our understanding with the brain, that's even possible right now. But if he was able to make testable predictions that could be applied and tested by anybody else and get the same results, that's great evidence. I would accept it. Mm-hmm. I know he did undertake several um, self-studies with himself as the subject he's written about it. Um, I read them a long time ago, so I can't really give you the details of that, but it, you, anyone could find it on, online, I'm sure. Um, so you won't go into that because I don't have the, enough knowledge to really put up a case for it, except that it is very interesting reading if you're ever interested in that sort of thing. Um, okay, mediumship. It's an interesting one. Um, which is, of course, a phenomena of... The the ship in, in between a small ship and a big ship, a medium ship. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is the case of um, people able to receive communications from spirits or deceased persons. Uh, I've had a couple of experiences with mediums. A couple were good uh, in terms of they were able to get information which I wouldn't have assumed by any form of cold reading or hot reading... I mean, I didn't give any names or anything away, so they couldn't have hot-read me anyway. Um, but through various trickery, you would think it's very unlikely that they'd get this personal information. Uh, but then I've had others as well, which were, I see your grandmother, she's got knobbly knees, she likes to bake. Yeah, I mean, that's 90% of grandmothers on the planet. Um, so there are, of course, cases of very suggestible mediumship readings in which some information was available which you would assume would be unknowable from any kind of trickery or, or anything else i mean dr gary schwartz with his his research which isn't really seen as as strong in the scientific community but it's evidence nonetheless um and one that dr jan holden gave me i can't i can't remember her name i've got it written down but i haven't had a chance to look at that yet which i need to look at which is another study which apparently provided positive results um so what's your take on, on the general kind of mediumship? Um, well, I would like to think of it in the Randy challenge kind of a way. If there was a medium that could actually do it, there have been millions of dollars offered that you could just 
go in, demonstrate it, give one successful result, you get a million dollars. And none of them have ever been won. So I don't, I don't think that any of them are really trustworthy. I think it's probably just luck. They do it a lot. They can get to read on your personality. And so they're going to make similarities between you and a different person they had a conversation with who is real similar and say, I'm going to guess this name because he has this age. And so his grandparents are of this generation. This was a really common name in this generation. So even though he hasn't told me anything, I'm going to probably going to guess this name and I could be right X percent of the time. So I think if mediumship was an actual real thing, then somebody would have won the James Randi challenge for a million dollars. There's about 10 other challenges that are the same that I've looked into. Like, I would really like to win those challenges. So if you can do it, tell me how, and I will go win the money. Yeah. I mean, the Randi challenge is, is a controversial one because I've, I've heard different opinions on on James himself and his organization that they're untrustworthy, that he's been proven a liar. And on the other side, that he's a you know, the best kind of sceptical voice out there and that he's completely legitimate and everything else, just that no one's been able to do it. Um, I mean, the the whole thing with, did you see about him with Rupert Sheldrake's dog experiment? <clears throat> I believe so. I do I do remember, uh, Rupert yeah. Sheldrake is a really interesting guy. I definitely like his research. Is, he's actually like academically published papers on this, which is fascinating. More for, more for genetic fields and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never really read those sort of. I've, I've read little bits, but I haven't. It's very scientifically minded. It's difficult to get your head around. But with his his dogs that know when their owners are coming home, experiment. Um, he's passed that on to to Randy, who or was it Randy? No, it wasn't Randy. It was. Oh, it was an, an, another conjurer skeptic. I can't remember his name. Michael Shermer. No, um, he's he was also a magician. But he, regardless of the name, he was able to replicate the studies. Um, and later, I think it was later denied that he was able to. Uh, it was t- I can't remember because he definitely did something with Randy and I don't want to get the two stories mixed. One of them was able to replicate it and the other kind of lied about or was at some point untruthful about having access to to the research they did to replicate it. So it's almost as if they were trying to hide it. I think that was James Randi. But I know that multiple people were able to replicate it, but then kind of put it aside as coincidence or luck or whatever, that the dogs were able to sense when the owner was coming home and behaved in a certain way, um, even with the intention of the owner coming home, which ruled out any kind of sound of engines or or situations like that. So with with James Randi's study, things like that always kind of seem to knock his repu- reputation. But as as to what that says about his actual challenge, I don't know. Oh well, yeah, because the challenge you actually have to do something. You have to go into yeah. his studio and actually do the experiment with him, and it's recorded. So that wouldn't have been a part of the James Randi challenge. Um, I don't know about the specific case with the dogs, the but if it's definitely repeatable, you should be able to. Anybody should be able to repeat it and do it and over and over again. And if you can get enough scientific support behind it of people repeating it and doing it all around the world, getting the same result, then it would be mainstream science. Um, so my hunch is, is that it's probably just the random thing. Like the reason it's discounted is probably because it's random. Like if it could actually be repeated over and over and over again, anywhere in the world, people that are actually doing that, then that would be mainstream science. Mm. Yeah. And that's something that I always wonder about these, these claims that people make on the spiritual sides, Sorry, I'm just trying to look up what the other guy was called because it's getting on my nerves. No, not James Randi. I know him. It's the other one. Um, 
oh it's all james randy he's the other guy uh but it always surprises me that these spiritual experiences and mediumship and things like that that are apparently world changing if if they were the evidence was as strong as it seems you would have thought that it would have been picked up by now into the mainstream which it always concerns me as to why it's not because the evidence from what i can see seems reasonable enough to at least warrant proper research into it but that doesn't seem to happen whether that's due to funding or or what i'm not sure i mean i know um a guy that's very um respected in this sort of thing is dr peter fennick in the death and the dying and his experiences with it he's <coughs> a side authored many studies on it with penny sartorian he was involved with the aware study i think or other um studies by um as soon as I start talking about I forget their names, the guy that did the AWARE study, Sampania. And he's done a lot of studies and he's concluded as a result that there is something more that we don't understand yet as to whether that's God or souls or whatever, or an extension of, of naturalists. But he's more inclined to assume that there is something going on based on his research and his interpretation of the evidence. Well, I'm pretty sure um, every scientist agrees with him on that. There's always stuff we have no idea about. We're most of the universe we have no idea about and most of the brain like biology and neurology are the two fields in science that are the least understood because they're the most complicated so everyone's going to agree with them that there's definitely stuff going on that we don't understand but the question is is you can't just go from here's something we don't understand to here's an explanation um, for it which is mm -hmm. beyond anything we have evidence for we're going to add a whole new category of stuff here and we're going to say that stuff is the explanation for this unknown thing it's, it's kind of like um, the Neil deGrasse Tyson quote. Someone says, oh, look, a UFO, an unidentified flying object. It must be aliens. Mm. Well, if it's unidentified, mm. you can't then identify it as aliens. That's aliens. a contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. So the same thing applies to these cases of, of course, there's lots of stuff we don't understand, but they're going beyond that and saying, here's something we don't understand, therefore the supernatural. And that's, that's kind of the contradiction of why most of this research isn't really well accepted. We can grant there's something we don't understand, but to be able to explain it and say what it is, you need to be able to make testable future predictions and say, given this hypothesis, we can predict the X, Y, and Z, and then do this experiment and get these results. And then that'll show that this is a good reason to believe that this is the explanation rather than just mm. saying, here's something we can't understand. Mm. I think it's difficult to get that kind of empirical evidence with this kind of, of area because it's a very subjective experience as opposed to something that's empirically verifiable. Um, apart from the cases, as we say, that where people have been able to verify things externally from their body, which, as, as, as you said, could be due to unconscious memory storage producing that illusion of consciousness. Um, and it's, it's all very subjective. So outside of people's anecdotes of it, there's very little to, to study, unfortunately. Well, exactly. That's kind of the thing about science is that the first step to science is we need some way to differentiate. Is this whatever we're, we're studying? Is this an imaginary thing or is this something that's a part of the world? And the point of science is to say, here is a methodology we can use that can effectively demonstrate this is definitely something in the world and not just something in our imagination. But if all mm. the evidence you have is just subjective and you don't have this kind of a methodology that can differentiate, well, then we don't have any reason to believe it's not just imaginary for whatever it is. And so there's lots and lots of fields 
um, like religious apologetics and um, near-death experiences and homeopathy and all these kinds of things, which only have these subjective experience kind of an evidence. And whenever we try to apply it to empirical um, testing or methodology, people always say, oh, this is more of a subjective thing. You can't really test it in that way. Well, well, then why do we have any reason to believe it's not imaginary? And the answer is mm. well, no, unless you can provide a different methodology that can differentiate between the imaginary and what's real, then we have to use the one that we have. And yeah. if we if it doesn't work to differentiate, then we have no reason to believe it's not just imaginary yet. Mm. But of course, over time, we may develop some kind of system that allows us to do that. But as of yet, what you're saying is there's no real there's no real way that we can differentiate between a real experience of subjective nature and an imaginary one of subjective nature without that empirical testable system yeah for now so if, yeah. you, if you want to say that there is like a supernatural out there then you would need to come up with a methodology that works kind of like science does that can differentiate between the imaginary and the real it doesn't have to be science it could be anything you want if it works mm. it works but until you have that way well then anything that we're dealing with could just be an imaginary thing. So you have to yeah. have some methodology to differentiate. Is this imaginary or is this real? Hmm. Sorry, I keep getting bloody hair in me. I need a haircut. Um, yeah, I was going to make a point and I've completely forgotten what it was. And I can't find this bloody magician. I can't remember his name and it's annoying me. What is your background? Where are you from? In terms of why I'm into this sort of thing. Yeah, your worldview. Your... My worldview, right, I see. So... I lean more towards the possibility that there is some kind of whatever you want to call it, spiritual dimension or extra dimension or whatever, based on the evidence that I've seen and my interpretation of it. Um, I may have a, a slight bias towards it because I have um, depression and anxiety, which started off with a fear of death. And that's why I started looking into it. So I try to negate any kind of bias, which is why I like talking to people on both sides and looking at it as objectively as possible. But from the evidence I've seen in my interpretation of it, I'm more inclined to believe that there is something, I wouldn't say supernatural, but natural, but as of yet undiscovered, that's going on in relation to consciousness and its relationship to the brain. I don't think as such, there's a bloody mouse in my room and he's scratching at my door. But <laughs> he's been there every night and he wakes me up and I hunt him and I can't catch the bloody... But, uh, oh, uh, I've had mice in my basement. The best way to do it is you take a, like a trash can with a, like a medium sized trash can or a small sized trash can, put a plastic bag in it and just put some peanut butter in the bottom yeah. and also get in. It'll get stuck there. and It'll just make noise like trying to call up the, trying to get out. the paper bag so you'll know exactly where it's there. And it That's works every idea. time because there was a hole in my basement that was connected to my garage and mice would come in and fall in and then run around in my basement. And I actually had one that was crawling up on my foot one time I was like, what is that? I'd like grab a flashlight. Like there was a mouse on my foot. Quite, quite a strange experience. Yeah. I don't have a problem with mice. It's just annoying when they wake you up in the middle of the night and they completely ignore the traps you put down. I mean, I don't like killing them. I've got a little humane traps that just traps them. And they almost defiantly run around the trap despite having peanut butter and jam or jelly for you in it. And they go round it and start scratching up my bloody carpet. Little shits. But... <laughs> Uh, yeah, in terms of, of relationship between the consciousness and the brain, I'd be more inclined at the moment to assume that it's probably... I mean, it's difficult because there's evidence on both sides for emergence versus kind of a transceiver relationship. I don't know because the evidence for emergence can also be explained via 
the transceiver theory. The only thing we don't have with the transceiver theory is a mechanism as to how it would work and where it originally comes from. Um, outside of these experiences of near-death, out-of-body mediumship, which are more suggestive that maybe it is, but as you say, most of them can be explained through naturalistic means, so it's a very difficult one. And we can't assume either way, because if we assume either way, then you lose the possibility to postulate with the other op option. Right, you should never stop searching. Yeah, I think postulate's the right word. If it's not, I look stupid. Um, so yeah, I'd say that at the moment, I'm more for transceiver theory, that it's filtered through, because that explains more for me, personally, that explains more of these phenomenal experiences than the emergence thing it doesn't mean i'm right doesn't mean i'm wrong but that's my current position on it and um, but as i say i try to look at it from as little biased position as possible because if you have a bias obviously then you, you're gonna um what's what's the phenomenon called when you always look at evidence that only fits with your Cognitive paradigm uh... yeah uh yeah, that that sort of thing. I'll try to avoid that as much as possible. There's always going to be that, but it's minimising it that's, that's the case. Yeah, I remember there was the thing where you... There's the there's the one like bias where the more evidence... The smarter you are and the more evidence you see, you see it, and then the backfire effect, the back where you get evidence right. contrary to your position, but you make it actually... makes you yeah. more likely yeah, to be yeah, in yeah. your position. Yeah, I know what you mean. You, can, you twist it to kind of explain more for your theory than... The fact that it's against it it's a lot of people on in the position of believing that the earth is flat are good at that sort of thing they take they take evidence that's <sighs> obviously against it to anybody's mind but they can somehow if they like they would be very good car salesmen they can twist it to make it and they do it very well but you just wonder why how can you not see this you know because the bible says so that's essentially yeah. the justification and, and the earth is six thousand years old that's not possible. Hmm. I mean, it's possible, but it's incredibly unlikely. Right. We could all be in the it, Matrix. It's just the whole world yeah. was five minutes ago. Yeah, that's right. I mean, talking talk about that sort of thing, the Matrix and um, the holographic universe theory, that's an interesting one. Because at the core, you can understand and kind of agree with what it's saying, that the universe is essentially just a projection of data that we receive and perceive through our senses. And I agree with that because essentially if you look at it, you know, everything that we can sense is just an illusion of the organs that we have to perceive it. Whether that's the universe as it actually is or whether it's just as far as we can actually translate it. So, um, do you know Tom Campbell's big toe? I mean, not his, his toe on his foot, but I mean his big theory of everything. Do you know about that? Um, not that one specifically. No, me neither, <laughs> to a great degree. But essentially it's saying that, that the universe is, is information at its base core, just just information, which is then translated and perceived by us. Um, and he's on the same kind of side as, as me in that he interprets the evidence to suggest that there are different levels of perception, different levels of, I suppose, different dimensions of, of life, um, which is based on the core information of the universe and different vehicles that is used to perceive. I don't want to misquote him because I, again, it's not something I've read completely, but this is what I can gather from what I have seen. Um, 
and that's all, all going into things like the eth etheric bodies and the subtle bodies and all that sort of thing. I mean, do you know about that idea? I've definitely researched a lot of information theory, especially yeah. in physics, because information being fundamental is definitely a serious part of physics. But normally by information, they just mean the amount of bits required to describe the physical system, not usually a conscious information. That's a mm. more minority position in physics. It's like, I think, six, two to six percent of physicists think about consciousness as being fundamental. And then there's the holographic principle by Leonard Susskind where he says that just the holographic principle just says that all the information in a 3d space can be represented on a sphere surrounding the 3d space. Um, so that's definitely a thing. It's definitely true in physics that the holographic principle is a thing, but it doesn't mean that we are a simulation it just means we can be represented by a simulation. That's all mm. it means. But I think that I'm skeptical of anything that says consciousness is fundamental or consciousness is the grounding of reality because it seems like mm. consciousness is pretty much, subservient to everything else in the universe like if we don't get food we lose consciousness if we get hit in the head we lose consciousness if a asteroid comes and hits the planet we all lose consciousness mm -hmm. so the idea that somehow consciousness is more fundamental than matter and physics and black holes and the stars seems very strange to me because of how what a small role consciousness seems to play in the universe as a whole so when i try to think about explaining consciousness and is consciousness like the transceiver uh, explanation like you put it i think that the better explanation is like in physics the better physics explanation is one that only uses combinations of verified principles particles and laws in physics so you can make a hypothesis like the multiverse or something but the multiverse is only using other parts of physics that have already been confirmed so like mm -hmm. vacuum states and early universe inflation those things have been confirmed and you combine those the math in those two together you get the multiverse so i think mm -hmm. that's a good theory as opposed to something like um uh, wimps or some really complicated physics theory that inputs new things that haven't been verified. If you just add a new particle that hasn't been verified to your theory, it's a less good theory than something like the multiverse, which is only using parts that have been verified. I think explaining consciousness is the same kind of a thing. If we're explaining it only using combinations of things that have already been verified, like matter and motion and saying it's an emergent property, I think that's a better explanation than if you're going to come up with an explanation that adds something new to the mm -hmm. explanation that hasn't been verified. So if all of the pieces of the explanation have been verified, then it's a better explanation than one when you have to add something new that hasn't been verified. So that's why yeah. I prefer the emergent property explanation to the transceiver explanation. Mm. The difficulty with that then is the hard problem, isn't it? Trying to explain how that happens through individual neurons that by themselves aren't conscious and how having multiple millions billions of them together how that can suddenly create a sense of self-awareness that's the difficult thing and i guess that won't be done for many many years right. if indeed right well, that goes back to my example of uh here's something we can't explain why would we jump from that to supernatural or jump to yeah. that to unknown natural no, we just have to say that's what we can't explain that yet we're gonna yeah. have to wait wait for no, that's, that's not the right way to do it that's the god of the gaps thing exactly we can't explain it therefore it must it can't be natural exactly as opposed to it's natural but we haven't found out how to describe it yet but yeah i mean i i think that as i say i'm on the side that i mean my main area of research is life after death or life after or what death is mainly whether it is cessation of consciousness which i'm more inclined to believe at the current position that there is continuation of experience after death for how long i don't know um 
but I, mean, I know with Sam Panya's aware study, he's determined that after the heart stops beating, consciousness is retained for a certain period of time beyond what we originally thought. As to whether that continues to eternity, as, as the religions say, we can't, we don't have the data for that. We can't have the data for that because once you reach that point, you can't come back and tell us about it. And that's that's why I like, um, again, Dr. Jan Holden with her position, because she's saying that the evidence we have with her research of veridical perception in out-of-body experience can say that conscious experience is possible up to the point of irreversible death, because beyond them, we don't know. And to me, that's much more scientific and much more accurate than saying this then shows that we are eternal spiritual beings. It doesn't. It shows that up to that point, we have some form of conscious experience potentially. And this is why I, I don't like organized religion and things like that that deal with absolutes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, e there can even be an afterlife for uh, materialists who think there's only matter and energy. I mean, we could actually be in the matrix. So if we die here, we just wake up in the matrix and we have mm. an afterlife. So it's, it's clearly mm. possible to have an afterlife or have consciousness after our physical bodies die. But mm. the question is, is, do we have any reason to believe it? And I lean towards no. Whereas I'd lean towards yes, it's, it's just a case of different interpretations of those, which is I hate to see, and it's common amongst the skeptics, the you know the hardcore skeptics versus the believers. There's always a sense of ridicule between them, as in how can you not interpret data the same way I do? You must be stupid. But it's just a case of of that interpreting the data in different ways, and you need to do that to kind of enhance any scientific understanding. I think challenge each other all right absolutely i think my favorite quote from uh, john stuart mill he's one of my favorite authors is that if any commonly held idea we we have to come up with i forget the quote i used to had the whole like paragraph memorized but it's if any commonly held truth we have to come up with ideas and arguments against it um to try and improve the idea if because if we just grant it for certain and we don't challenge it with the best possible devil's advocate arguments we can never grow or learn so mm. it doesn't matter like how well supported it is. We should still come up with arguments against it to try and find a way to challenge every idea we have. Mm. Yeah, a, a good example is is Alex from Skeptico. I mean, I, I like I like his show, but I think the way the way he he deals with the the skeptics isn't isn't the way I'd do it. Kind of, he seems very solidly set on his position, and anything you say against it. He, he argues with which is good but he seems to do it somewhat unnecessarily aggressively rather than kind of taking it on board saying yeah i agree with what you say i'm going to go back and look at it because you know what, what i've heard you say is completely plausible and and i agree but that doesn't mean that it's it's necessarily true it's just something that warrants looking into more um, well, there is and, something to say for that is that being uh, controversial and aggressive gets you a lot more views on YouTube. So true. The, the fights yeah. are, are good true. for monetization. And so that's why those yeah. people usually get more popular than the more subtle intellectual types is because uh, when you're more aggressive like that, you get a lot more views. So yeah, you grow. I don't know. I, I don't want to take it away from Alex. I think what he does is, is very good. And I agree with most of what most of what he says. Um, just the way that he does it, I'd do it a slightly different way. And that's why I, I tend to ignore or stay away from these media skeptics like Michael Shermer and um, who else? You know, folks Randy. like that. James Randi and folks like that, because 
at the end of the day, it's a business. They're trying to keep their livelihood going. Um, I prefer to look at the people that are more under the radar and actually doing studies into this sort of thing and take their word for it rather than those that are running blogs and all that with millions and millions of views. And you can always tell the followers because as soon as somebody says something against them, they're in on your neck. Yeah. You fucking idiot. Blah, 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 blah. And I don't like that. But there we go. That's, that's, uh, that's why I'm trying to do it a bit differently. Yeah, I'm trying to mix it up and do a little bit of both. Do some of the controversial yeah. stuff and then also have the intellectuals on just actually yeah. honest discussions about the topic. So I, I wanted to do an episode touching on um, gender. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and um, I decided uh, there was a friend of mine I had for two years very nice girl she was <laughs> and then i happened to mention that i thought it was a bit daft that um a doctor in some hospital was recommending that males get implanted with wombs so that they can give birth if they identify as female and i said that seems a bit ridiculous and it started this whole thing of gender and are you male are you female what do you identify as and i ended up being called every name under the sun and blocked after two years of friendship so i thought I'm not going to touch that. It's so, not worth it. Good idea, yeah. <laughs> Some delicate topics, especially in, yeah. in the YouTube community, that there is yeah. not a good idea to, to touch those. No, it's a shame because you can't risk touching these things, but then you can't learn about them. Exactly. Which is a shame.